Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Welcome back to RUF. Uh, glad you all are here. Tuesday night, week three. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and um, if you're not familiar with that, it's a, uh, a sermon that Jesus preaches that we have what's close to like a full text or manuscript of one of his sermons. It's the only thing like that we have in the New Testament. And here's what he's doing. Um, he's describing a culture. And a lot of y'all know that I do CrossFit, and if you do CrossFit, the first rule of CrossFit is that you always have to talk about CrossFit. And um, that's part of the culture of it. And I like to make fun of it, even though I'm a part of it. Within CrossFit, there's a certain way of talking. We have words that make non-CrossFitters feel alienated in our conversations. We talk about wads and metcons and uh, burpees and muscle-ups and that kind of stuff. We have a way of dressing. I can identify CrossFitters on campus according to the way they wear their shirts. Shoes are very important to CrossFitters, and they wear select lines of shoes that are very unique. Um, There's a way of eating associated with CrossFitters. Um, But there are all these marks that, like, constitute the culture of CrossFit. And I say it to say every community has those marks. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, this is what my community looks like. Here's the DNA. Here's the mojo for it. Here's the ethos. And what he says in this passage, he says there's a word that he wants us to use to describe the culture of God's community. And that word is righteous. And before you kind of react to that religious word righteous, his point in this passage is that it's not what we think it is. So let's pray and ask him what it is. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that Jesus has said these things uh, to us and I pray that you would press them into our own hearts and you would begin to change the way we understand what you've called us to uh, and that we would see there's something lovely here. Compel our hearts in your name we pray. Amen. So here's the thing about Jesus. Uh, if you've been tracking in the Sermon on the Mount, that you have to understand in order to get what Jesus is about. In order to really understand Jesus, you have to be willing to say, I'm really confused by what he says. That actually means you're listening. If you say, I'm really confused by what he says. Because he was confusing to his first listeners, Christians and non-Christians alike. Um, And he's confusing now. And the reason he's confusing, or one of the many reasons, is because he's actually always speaking on a deeper level than we want anyone to ever speak to us. And in fact, on a deeper level than a lot of us want to have a conversation with ourselves about. And he's frustrating because he actually, that means he really doesn't care about appearances. And the things, he doesn't care about the things we tend to admire about ourselves, the things that we think are our strengths, our best things, our resume builders, whether they're personal or professional or um, religious. He just never really cares or acknowledges those things. And these kind of people who don't acknowledge those things are frustrating because it feels like they're not playing by the rules. Because there are rules in this world and there are rules in every culture. And one of the rules in this world is like, if you're applying for a job at McKinsey and you have a 3-9 at Stanford and you're going up against somebody who has a 2-2 at Mississippi State, you get the job. And what Jesus does is he just subverts all the rules all the time. You're always like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, is, why are you giving all your attention and affection to this person over here who's not achieving in the certain ways that you're supposed to achieve 
in the kingdom of God. He's not playing by what we think are the established rules of religion. And that's frustrating. And you need to be frustrated by him if you're not frustrated by that. Even if you're not a Christian, you should think, okay, why does Jesus treat the people who are trying to act rightly, the people who are working really hard to act rightly, why is he so dismissive of them? Even if you're not a Christian, you've got to feel that tension for your Christian friends of like, that's not cool, Jesus, come on. Right? Like, your people are working really hard. It looks like they're having a really boring time in college. Why Why are you so mean to them? You know? He's not playing by the rules of religion. And that's frustrating us, just like it was frustrating his first listeners. Right? If you've ever been in a setting, um, you can imagine this. What if a person that you always hoped to impress, someone you had trained to impress and prepared to impress wasn't impressed by you and instead gave their time and attention and affection to someone who was far less impressive. Maybe you've been in that context before you thought, like, this is it. This is where my game shines and all of a sudden you were ignored. Or even worse, the person you wanted to impress picked a fight with you. That's what Jesus is doing. And it's irritating. Uh, He's confusing and he's confusing to everybody. Um, and now what I want you to see that Jesus is doing in this passage is he's, he's making two points that he wants us to wrestle with. And the first point is this. People are watching the ministry of Jesus unfold, and they're going, do you even care about the law? Like you said, you're like a teacher, you clearly know the Old Testament, but do you even care about the law? And what he said, because you're, you're spending... You're dismissive of the religious people who are working really hard to do the right things, and you're spending your time and you're giving your attention and affection and even care to really bad people, to sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. And people are being like, Jesus, do you even care about the law at all? Why do you treat religious people so poorly? And this is how he starts, right? Don't think I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, Not an iota or a dot will pass away. Jesus is saying, I'm seriously about the law. In fact, I'm more about the law than your most intentional religious moral person out there. And keep in mind who he's talking about. These are the religious professionals. He says, I'm so so much about the law. He literally is saying, not a single stroke of the pen in the Old Testament will be removed. I'm about every individual stroke of the pen on the scroll I guard them all and for all of them. And anybody who relaxes even the smallest, tiniest, seemingly unimportant rule, he's not with me. That's how much I am about the law. I've come to uphold and make sense of all of it. But secondly, he's also saying this. When you get grace and you understand what I've come to do, my people are going to have a righteousness, right? The word for the mojo of his people, a way of living. That far... Mojo's not funny. Like Mojo's... Let me think about that. All right. My people are going to live a certain way that far exceeds the people who are wearing themselves out to do everything right. That's what he's saying. And it's confusing because who's Jesus? Is he like all for the law or is he like all for grace? And the answer is he's for both. And this is really the point of not only this passage but everything that unfolds for the next chapter and a half in the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus came to fulfill the law so that His people could begin to live a new way. And He's not speaking, and we shouldn't think about spirituality, in a quantitative way, which is how we often do. 
right? Well, what does that mean that we do more good things and less bad things? It's not what he's talking about right here. He's talking about that you'll be a different person in a qualitative way. You'll live a whole new way because you will actually be a different kind of person with a different heart than what you used to have. And so I want us to see those two points. And first, that um, I want us to look at the fact that Jesus, what does Jesus mean when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I'm all about the law. And that question is a really good question. Why, what does it mean that he came to fulfill the law and that he's not abolishing it? And that's important because that question goes right at the heart of the, of the tension maybe you felt before. I think a lot of us do. Of What do we do with the weird laws in the Old Testament, like not eating lobster, like sacrifices, um, sick people being excluded from worship? What do we do about the relationship between that law, which we don't seem to practice anymore, and then the moral law, which is also in the Old Testament, but now that's, we still practice that? He's addressing that phenomenon. He's answering that question. And I can't get into all the answers, but I want to give you a big picture. And you can ask me about this. We actually did a whole semester on that, a whole quarter on this uh, a year ago. But I want to give you a big picture of what he's talking about. When Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, it it means that he came to keep and bring the full meaning of the law. Think about those words, to keep and to bring the full meaning in the law. That's why the word fulfill is actually very intentional, and you should think about both syllables. He came to fill up the law fully, uh, making the full meaning of it clear. Paul actually calls the law a teacher or a guardian that God gave to instruct us. The law has come to teach us about the nature of the world, about the nature of humanity, about the nature of sin, about God. The law is a teacher, and it's a teacher in two fundamental ways. And this is going to help you understand how the Old Testament and New Testament lay. The ritual and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament teach us how we relate to God, how we connect to Him. They teach us what why we are cut off from God, and how we reconnect from Him. And that's what the ritual and ceremonial law taught Israel and teach us today. The moral law teaches us, how then do we live in the world? Ritual and ceremonial law says, here's what's broken between God and man, here's how they relate and reconnect. Moral law says, now then, here's how you live in the world. And Jesus brings the full meaning of both of these things. And so what I want you to do is I want you to imagine the ritual and the ceremonial law. And it's bizarre, and I know you have a lot of questions about it. But imagine it to be a scaffolding for a building. You build up scaffolding, and, you, and it, scaffolding is absolutely necessary in order to build something. And it gives shape to what you're building, right? You build it around it. And it shows you what the building looks like. But once the building's fully built, in order to enjoy it, you have to take the scaffolding down. Right, The Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law was saying, here's the shape and here's the contour of our relationship with God. Namely that, first of all, we're unclean and we're not fit to come in His presence. So they had these ritual bathings. You weren't unclean because there was dirt on you, but the dirt was symbolic of a spiritual reality. So you had to clean yourself before you came before God. In order to be made new and to be right for His presence, to be holy, something had to pay the price for or carry off our uncleanness. So besides cleansing, there are also sacrifices where you would put your hand on an animal and confess your sin and transfer the guilt to that animal symbolically, and the animal would be killed. And what God was doing is He instituted 
physical rituals, dramas actually, to display heavenly realities. He instituted physical dramas in order to display heavenly realities for the purpose of giving you pattern recognition. Of saying, this is what it looks like to relate and to reconnect to God. So there are even laws about houses that had mildew and how they needed to be clean. And you'd be unclean if you lived in a house filled with mildew. And that was a picture of how sin has permeated everything. It did not mean that God was going to judge you for having mildew in your house. But it meant and it taught that sin gets everywhere, all over all of us. And so this law creates a scaffolding in the shape of the Redeemer. So that when the Redeemer comes, we would understand Him. It's taught us about Him. It's taught us about sin. It's taught us about God's love. It's taught us about sacrifice. And so what the book of Hebrews is, is a commentary on Old Testament ritual law. And what it says is we don't sacrifice at the temple anymore with animals. Because the sacrifice that all of those were portraying, those were foreshadowing, has come. And we don't need a priest anymore because the true priest has come in Jesus. And then this is what the Bible says about Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law. That according to the Bible, it's unbiblical now to continue to observe Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law. It would be unchristian to do that and unbiblical. And in the same way, Jesus has brought the full meaning of the temple system into reality. He's the true temple. So we don't need the teacher that preceded him anymore. Because the building of redemption is built, it's appropriate to remove the scaffolding that was necessary and to build it. And Jesus is the way that man and God are restored to each other that was always depicted through the office of the priest or through the sacrifice of the land. And this is what it means, that y'all actually still observe, we still observe and participate in Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law today. You actually do it very, very often and you don't know it. Because when you pray in Jesus' name, you're participating in the Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law because you're saying, my priest and my sacrifice is not a lamb or a Jewish priest, but the final and true lamb, the final and true priest, Jesus. You're actually displaying all the principles of the Old Testament ceremonial ritual law when you pray that way. And you're practicing them the way the Bible commends you to. (coughs) Jesus is our access to God now. Jesus is the true temple now. Jesus is the final lamb. When we do confession and assurance in RUF and you do it at church, you're actually practicing the guilt offering of Leviticus. So Jesus is filling out the Old Testament ceremonial and ritual law. We still actually use it today, but it's taken on a new form. But as you read the Old Testament, and then you begin to read the Old Testament, you realize Jesus and the New Testament writers are still holding forth the moral law. Right? The, the moral law that abides... It continues to abide, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's embodied in the Ten Commandments. And the great text of Hebrews actually says, what Hebrews, which has said, the ceremonial law and the ritual law has matured, and it's taken on this form now. It still goes through all that and says, Jesus is your final priest, Jesus is your final sacrifice. And then at the end it says, and therefore, put away sin, love one another. Keep all sexual activity within marriage. Don't be greedy. Be hospitable. Act honorably. The moral law is still applying in the same ways. And this is what it means for the Christian. Here's the application if you identify yourself as a Christian. It means this. Obedience is not optional. And Jesus is clear on that. And in fact, not a single stroke 
of the moral law is wiped away, and you can't minimize even the things that seem the least important to you. That we are called to live holy and upright lives, and we can't cherry-pick the moral law of God, and Jesus recognizes our tendency to cherry-pick, which is why he's saying, no, you can't even minimize the least part of the least of all. We can't cherry-pick because we don't care about what we don't care about and think we understand other rules better than God. That I should be able to get to cultivate anger in this one situation because of this uh, exception. I don't have to be generous because I don't have money, but sex is not that big of a deal. Everybody cheats. And Jesus is saying to all of those ways we justify mitigating the law, you're my people, and one of the ways I know is that you're pursuing whole lives in obedience to his whole law. Now here's, that, that's tension right there. And it's frustrating and it's hard. And I, and I can't back off of what Jesus has said. But we do have to continue to listen. And listen to what he says next. Because what he says next is, the righteous living, he says, by the way, let me give you a picture of what that looks like. The righteous living of the scribes and the Pharisees is not enough either. And these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, were people that fasted twice a week. Right? Some of us have never fasted. I tried fasting for like three days and made it like 12 hours. And um, these people fast twice a week. They've memorized at least the first five books of the Bible. Um, in terms of tithing and giving to the church, they were known to actually go through their spice cabinet. This is one of the things they talk about in the Gospels. Go through their spice cabinet and give one-tenth of everything in their kitchen. So they were very thorough law keepers. And the question is, what is the righteousness then that exceeds these kinds of people who are so devoted to doing all the right things? And this is the point we have to get. And this is really like, this is the meat of the passage. This is where I want you to wrestle with who you are. And where Jesus calls all of us to wrestle with who we are. The grace of God doesn't simply change your status before Him. Of going from being at enmity of God to with God or saved. Going from being condemned to end Jesus. It doesn't simply change your status with Him. His grace, when the depth and the profundity and beauty of His sacrificial love breaks in on your heart, it changes your heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. It starts to make you into a new kind of person. And the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is not quantitative, right? Doing more good things and less bad things, that's how we think. It's qualitative. The gospel doesn't just first change your how much in life, right? How much I'm doing one thing and how little I'm doing another. It changes the why of your life. And it addresses the why of everything you do. And what Jesus is hitting at is our religious insincerity. The way one high schooler at um, Pally talked about it when, he, when she was talking about the Silicon Valley kind of driven achievement culture. And she said this, this whole thing we're doing here, trying really hard in Silicon Valley, we lack sincere passion. And I thought that was an interesting statement that speaks to a lot of us. And I think probably a lot of people feel that way. That y'all are high achieving and we are working hard toward things, but our passion about those things is actually not sincere. And that what we're doing is maybe you feel like you need to have something to be passionate about. You see some other people that seem to be driven and focused and passionate. So you think, I've got to have something I'm passionate about. 
And so you choose something and then try to convince yourself over and over again that you're really sincere about this thing you're directing your life toward. And this is a place where people feel that it's really, really important to have something that you care about with all of your being. But when we can't find something that's worthy of giving all of our being to all the time, we manufacture an insincere passion. And we're trying to convince ourselves we care about something that we know is of moderate importance but can't bear the weight and meaning and purpose of our entire lives. And we can't admit that our furious activity on the outside, everything we're doing with our life, we can't admit that it is not matched by actually a deep, convicted, sincere passion on the inside. That this is it. This is worth giving my whole life to. We're just following everybody else because you're supposed to be fired up about something. And we've got to find something and manufacture some zeal for it. Right? And the reason we do that is because we're not attached to anything that actually gives us deeper purpose. So we just fabricate a purpose that we actually don't care about. And this is the reason that Silicon Valley has the reputation for trying to solve problems that don't exist. (laughs) Right? We have no passion about anything substantive, so we actually create a problem so that we can feel like we believe in something. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, in the kingdom of heaven, you actually get to live a way that's consistent with your passion. That there's a passion in God's people's hearts for shalom. That you get to experience what you've actually been longing for this entire time. Something worthy of giving your whole heart to and your passions to. Matching what you do in the world with what is in your heart. That's what Jesus wants from his people. And God made you to experience that wholeness and that completeness and that integration. And only something as big as the kingdom of God can actually handle that. And the scribes and and the Pharisees' righteousness was not obedience from love for the kingdom of God. It was a lot of different things, but it wasn't that. And all those things are qualitatively different than what Jesus is talking about here. And what their righteousness and their drivenness to live a certain way was, is what I sometimes call like chocolate bunny righteousness. You remember these chocolate bunnies that are shiny and glorious on the outside and hollow on the inside? There's such a disappointment when you encounter those as a kid and you're convinced they're solid chocolate and then you find out they're just this chalky shell. That's our spiritual lives, isn't it? Right? Trying to look really good on the outside and hollow on the inside. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. Because their obedience is not from love, it's from fear. I'm afraid that God could never love me. I'm afraid that the people around me could never love me. What's in my heart is not a love for what's right, right? not character. That's what that is. But actually a fear of rejection. And that's what drives me. So they worked really hard to obey. They're externally very successful. And then internally, they're a storm of insecurity, just like we are, right? We all feel this, I don't have enoughness. We all have this, I'm, am I going to be accepted? And it's all there because they didn't understand what Jesus had done in fulfilling the ritual and the ceremonial law. That he has actually made God's people right with God. So they're trying to obey, driven by fear. Trying to make themselves right. And the way that you know that you're obeying and trying to become someone, and you're obeying, maybe it's not even God's mojo, but your culture's kind of ethos out of fear, the way you know it is you never feel like you're good enough. That's how you know it's fear is driving you. 
is you always feel like you're going, you're always worried you could get exposed, and you're never sure you're good enough. And apart from God, if, if it's not God you're trying to please, everyone chooses a smaller deity to try and please so that you can feel accepted. Someone please find me cool enough. The application process. Sitting down at lunch with people you don't know very well. Are they going to laugh at me? Are they going to think I'm clever? Trying to be certain all the time that we're going to be accepted. And you're either going to do that for God or you're going to do that for another audience. And what Jesus wants you to know is if that's the way you go about pursuing obedience in the kingdom of God, God's not interested in that kind of obedience. Obedience from fear, trying to make him like you. Because it doesn't mean your heart's not there. And if it's not obedience from fear, it's obedience for superiority. To establish a sense of superiority over others. Because it feels good to say, at least I'm not them. Right? That feels like you have a lot if you have the ability to say that. Right now, this week on campus, right? The Greeks are saying, at least I'm not the independents. And the independents are saying, at least I'm not the Greeks. Everybody feels that tension a little bit, right? And what, y'all are actually both self-righteous about not being each other. Just, that's just the way we are. We find something to be self-righteous about so we can say there's a group of people that I'm better than. Right? And if it's not the Greek system, it's schoolwork. Maybe it's fitness. Maybe it's your religion. Maybe it's your cause. But the way that you always know that you're obeying a code in order to get a sense of superiority is that you have an incredible capacity to despise people different from you. And you can be really religious and you can be really moral this way. And Jesus doesn't care for any kind of obedience that is really externally successful that is driven from fear or driven for superiority. Because what Jesus is aiming for is obedience from the security of covenant love. That's the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. The beauty of the kingdom of God is this, that you're received by grace, not because you are better, but actually in spite of the fact that we're the worst. You're covered completely, and you're paid for, and you're ransomed, and you're forgiven, and you're restored, and you're accepted. And because your entrance into the kingdom of God was based on Christ's merit, His perfect obedience on your behalf, and not your own merit, you never, in the kingdom of God, have to feel or question Am I good enough? And if you ask God that question, God, am I good enough for the kingdom of heaven? This is, I'm translating what I think or interpreting what I think his words to you might be. He's going to say, you weren't, but Christ was good enough in your place. So we don't need to revisit this conversation ever again. I've dealt with it and you need to let it go because I have. This is word to you in the kingdom of God. No other kingdom and no other God is going to speak those words to you. Because every other kingdom and every other God and everything else we serve is going to say, right now you're accepted-ish. It could change tomorrow. Stanford feels that way about you. Your friends feel that way about you. Probably the wonderful person you're marrying will still also feel that way about you. Even marriages can't endure the kind of love God offers us. But God's like, let's stop revisiting that I told you it's taken care of. I'm not interested in you trying to obey because you're afraid of not being enough in that kingdom. I don't even accept that kind of obedience. I don't like it. I love you, and I want you to know that I love you. These are God's words. And I want you, what you to do now is to imagine along with me what a beautiful life pursuing shalom in this world would look like. Let's imagine beauty together instead of run from fear together. That's what Jesus is inviting you.
This is a life where God is worshipped because He's good. This is a life where we rest because work is no longer the way that we validate ourselves. We're, we're Families experience healing because children honor even their bad parents. Where life is protected and valued and sought, where truth is upheld and spoken at every corner. Where sexuality flourishes because it's within the context of marriage and family building. Where justice is sought. Where we live generously giving instead of greedily wanting. It's just a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's Jesus' picture and God's picture of Shalom. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God, God's love for you is big enough for your heart is big enough to give your lives to. And so when you begin to understand that, you get to be a whole person for the first time. You no longer have to be insincerely passionate, trying to love something you don't really love because you feel the need to have your life driven towards something of meaning. God's saying, the kingdom of God, that's what you were made for. I'll close with, how do we get it? How do we begin to get that righteousness? How do we begin to live that kind of full-hearted way, right? Where your heart is given to something good simply because it is genuinely, eternally good. Instead of giving your heart to something you kind of don't believe in but are slightly amused by for a while. Here's the first thing that has to happen. And it's what a columnist has been using this phrase, I've been thinking a lot about. David Brooks keeps talking about an inner confrontation. And I think the first thing that has to happen if you want to begin to live that wholehearted way is an inner confrontation. And here's what I mean by that. Stop asking this question. How do I get better as, at being a Christian or being moral? Stop asking that question. If you're a non-Christian, you actually also need to stop asking the question, how do I do better at trying to become the person I wish I was but I'm still not? Stop asking either one of those questions. Those are not questions of inner confrontation. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. And if you have friends that know you, talk about this. What is actually in my heart? Stop asking, how do I improve? Ask, what actually is in my heart? Don't ask, how do I stop doing the bad things? That's a legitimate question later. But ask, what is it in me... That causes me to live in ways that are counter to how God has called me. Because here's what we need, another phrase we need to stop using. That wasn't me. When we use that phrase, that wasn't me, or that was a big mistake, or that didn't really make sense, and we kind of divest our personal responsibility from something foolish that we did, we're cutting off that process of self-knowledge. Because guess what? That thing that wasn't you, that's you. (laughs) Ask Ask yourself the question of why. What is in my heart that led me there? What's in here? Right? Is it to have a fear-driven desperation to have people like me? I'm afraid of being bored. I need to feel something. I need to harden myself so I don't feel anything. I have to be recognized. I don't know who I was. I don't know who I'd be if I didn't win. What is it in you that is driving you? And actually, you'll learn more about yourself when you're honest about the bad things and say, something in me drove me there. What is it? Stop asking how to improve and how to do a better job meeting my goals and say, what is it that I really love? What is it I'm really afraid of? What's the deeper thing driving me? And then here's the next thing. Do that inner confrontation. And, and it takes years. In a lot of ways, you continue to grow in that the rest of your life. And then grieve. And we talked about this two weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor it. 
But this is why the spiritual discipline of being sad is so important. When you grieve what's in your heart, you've named it now. You haven't run from it or tried to explain it away or say it wasn't you. When you actually grieve what's in your heart, here's what you'll do. You'll pray authentically for the first time ever in your life. You know how prayer feels thin and weird? The reason it feels thin and weird is because we're not doing that process of inner confrontation, discovering what's really in our heart, and then having an honest, desperate conversation. Prayer is most real when it's desperate. You get sad about what's in your heart, here's how your prayers will start to naturally change. You'll stop praying, Jesus, help me get the things I want. And Jesus, help me to be a better moral person next week. You'll pray that some. That's still even a legitimate part of prayer. But that will feel less pressing. And what you'll feel is, Jesus, save me. Because now I know who I am. You'll be desperate for the first time before the throne of grace. And he will meet you with love and comfort and forgiveness. Your prayer life will be rich when you learn how to be sad. And you start praying, Jesus, save me. Instead of, Jesus, help me improve. And he saves by grace. And here's the next thing. So do business with yourself. Grieve and pray for the first time if you've never done that. And then here's the next thing. And this one's important too. And it's so boring and not cool to say this. Okay? Attend to his words. Which means come to things like RUF, go to small groups, and go to church. Worst uncool application ever, right? No preacher wants to be like, you need to go to church more and read your Bible more, right? Uh, Maybe that's just a self-loathing issue I have, but (laughs) a real Christian, when when these things start happening in your life, you don't read the Bible because you feel guilty that you haven't been reading it and you want to make God happy and so you're going to read it more. You're going to take some verses out of context and make them your kind of fortune cookie for the day. That's not real Christianity. I don't, I don't know what that is. That's probably closer to like some weird forms of mysticism, right? Where you just focus on some words and somehow they change you or something. I don't know what that is. When you begin this process of seeing what's in your heart and grieving it and praying authentically to God, a real Christian reads the Bible and, and when they read the Bible, they understand what Jesus meant when he was saying, the Bible is bread that brings life to someone starving. Go to God's word because you have to have it to survive. Because you need to hear what he has to say to our hearts and to our sorrow about ourselves. Is there an answer for it? And you run to the Bible craving the answer instead of going to the Bible guiltily, even though you don't have time, but you know you should do it because you're kind of a Christian, right? Don't you want the Word of God to be food for you? Don't you want it to be life-giving water? The only way it ever will be is if you learn how to grieve what's in your heart. And then the Bible will change your life. Until then, it's just going to be this weird, guilt-ridden, religious ritual. Here, so go to the places where the word is pressed into your life and presented to your heart. And that's church, that's RUF, that's small group, that's reading it on your own, all those kind of things, right? Rehear, hear what God has to say to you. How do I know that Elizabeth loves me and begin to become a better husband? Here's how I do it. I remember what she's done for me. I remember that she loves me. I remember the stories of her love for me. I remember that she promised her life to me. I think about this. This is her promise of giving her whole life to me, right? She made breakfast for dinner for me tonight. That's a real historical story I'm telling you about right now of what Elizabeth did for me, right? And she made grits, cheese grits, 
right? And bacon and English muffins and scrambled eggs. This is my favorite meal in the new heavens and new earth. This is what we're going to have all the time. So we're all going to be disappointed, but grits are really good. You just got to come around. But she made breakfast for dinner. She cleaned my dirty laundry. She knows the worst things about me. Things that if you knew about me, you wouldn't come back to RUF because we all have those things. But she still sticks around. She rubs my feet when they're sore. She's stuck with me. She drives my children all around Kingdom Come so that they can play soccer and so that they can learn piano. She's forgiven me for not being a great husband. And here's how long I haven't been a great husband. 13 years. We give them roommates in like two months, right? 13 years she's had a bad roommate. And she made breakfast for me, breakfast for dinner for me tonight. Here's what I just did in front of you. I actually wanted to, that was an exercise and a spiritual discipline. I preached a sermon of Elizabeth's love to my own soul right here and now. And honestly, really and truly, y'all saw real transformation take place. 30 seconds later, I, I, I want to be a better husband now. My heart is warmed toward Elizabeth. Because I remember the stories of what she done. I'm more fired up about being a different husband. I'm going to go home a different way tonight because of that one minute exercise y'all just watched. That's what reading scripture is. It's remembering the stories of God's love to you. It's pressing them into your heart. This is why the Bible is food. This is why it gives us life. This is why it changes us. Because we go to it and say, I'm guilty and I'm selfish. And He loves me. And He chose me. I'm insecure, but He loves me. How do I know? Because when justice came to bear on my life and made its demands on my life, it was too much for me to pay and He paid for it. It was going to kill me, and he paid my ransom with his own life. Even now, he won't abandon me. He sent his spirit into my heart. The spirit of God is the thing you fight with all the time. That's the thing internally that you're fighting with all the time. That's how you know you have it, as you're fighting and struggling. He set a community of his people around me. And I, I, I want to speak his promises to you. And I need you to speak his promises to me, because sometimes my belief is so thin. I need you to believe it for me and believe it back on me. And if you've experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where someone still believes for you and you're upheld by it. Right? Attend to his word, hear what he has said, and hear what he has done for you. And when you start to do those things, when you deal with who you are, you're sad about it, you pray authentically, and you hear what Jesus has done, you begin to pursue a life of obedience Because it's a life that you know is beautiful to the God you love. That's why you do it. Because you know it's beautiful to Him. In the next verses, we're going to talk about these in the coming weeks. Jesus applies it to sexual ethics, to anger, to giving, to dealing with enemies, to dealing with the poor, to judging other people, to prayer. He's saying you become qualitatively a totally different person, a whole person. Who lives saying... I love my God. I think I actually love Him. Because He first loved me. And you have the experience, the healing experience of finally your external life and your internal life being the same thing. Instead of an insincere passion over here driving you to do something you don't care about over here. And here's the thing about it. Being sincere is hard. It's expected to be hard. Being a sincere person is hard. And sincere people actually fall down more than insincere people do. But God grows you in true sincerity by re-preaching the news of His love every single time you fall down. And in the, the message of His forgiveness and His grace and His acceptance so that you can get back up again and say, My God is good. 
and I'm going to tell the truth for Him. My God is good. And I'm going to pursue chastity for Him. My God is good. So I'm going to forgive others like He forgave me. My God is good. So I'm going to love enemies the way He loved me. Sincerity is hard. But it's only in the safety of God's grace that you're ever going to get to finally be a person whose heart and whose actions match each other. And that is a sweet place to be because that's where you're intended to be. And that's the righteousness that exceeds the religious professionals. It's a life to live from love and for love. And that's what Jesus is calling you to. Let's pray.